Today's episode is about addiction and recovery. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, treatment is available. And while no single treatment method is right for everyone, recovery is still possible. Please visit na.org or call 818-773-9999 for more information on treatment centers and meetings near you. That's 818-773-9999. Recovery. It's just a phone call away. Hey guys, we're back and I'm just here to start off our recovery episode here. Got some special guests uh, with me today. I got Justin over here. You guys have heard from him um, in our Moundsville episode and I got Kev right above me and uh, they're going to talk to a little bit today about recovery. Going to be some of their story, also some um, things that have kept them going over the years. Um, First off, I'd like to know with Britt and Jess if there's any specific questions or topics that you would like for them to touch base on. Uh, I I just want to hear their stories. So, because uh, like I said in last week's episode, um, that I used to be very judgmental when I was younger because of like me and cats cousin ODing I was kind of like mad at the world and for a few years I was very very judgmental towards addicts and then when I started working on the ambulance it just really really changed my outlook and now I'll punch someone in the face if I hear them like say anything negative about an addict so I just want to know their stories okay um so which one of you would like to start are we just gonna wing it we're just uh winging it but it don't matter uh i mean yeah we can kind of go ahead we can kind of wing it i guess we can kind of fire off the hip together i guess because a lot of our recovery addiction we live together uh she introduced us separately but justin is my blood cousin our moms are sisters so uh we lived a lot of that together I mean, I guess my mouth's running, so I'll go ahead and get at it. Uh, so for me, I—I uh, I mean, I was able to control myself a lot better when I was younger. But like the first time I smoked marijuana, probably like thirteen, fourteen years old, um, and grew up around like alcohol drinking, like you know, it was the big thing for the generation before me and him. So it wasn't abnormal to be at a you know a, a party or a bonfire with family that was drinking and smoking. So it kind of came natural, really. Um, social thing. Um, so I think like I don't know. As I got a little older, like fifteen, sixteen, like I started experimenting with other stuff. You know, I lived out in the country. Uh, small i had three friends you know we was with each other every day and they lived right by a bar that was in the hole in the wall bar so it was kind of the norm really like you go in the bar and everybody's 
was all messed up. Like it wasn't a big thing for kids coming there after hours that all hung out and we're doing cocaine and all their good jazz. So like this stuff came pretty easy. Um, you know, cause like we're not, they never sold us anything at that age, but like, I know a lot of times like growing up, I had this best, my best friend named Nate, uh, you know, his uncle was big into stuff. So like, it wasn't nothing to like go try to make some money off of Jimmy and go clean out his garage and run across a couple eight balls of cocaine. And I mean, we're teenagers, so we're going to try to live it up. We're not going to tell anybody we're going to take and do it. But like that part of my life, like I was pretty well able to control my use. Um, not saying it was good, not saying it was bad, but like I could put it down. Like I could go and, you know, do what I was going to do, sleep it off and not do it again for a long time. Um, you know, and my childhood was pretty good. Like, uh, didn't, my dad was absent. I mean, he was a weekend dad, but I became secondhand to his new family. Um, but yeah, raised by women, me and Justin, both, you know, our moms and aunts and grandma. So, uh, we grew up with a lot of like love and compassion, but at the same time, like we grew up with a bunch of enablers that really didn't want to tell us no. You know when it come to anything so like i could run with my friends at all hours go leave at 16 not come for, for come home for a few days like i actually moved out when i was at 16 and uh i had moved in with my best friend's brother and needless to say he was out cheating on his girlfriend and they had a daughter and well he was cheating so she decided she wanted to cheat and i started doing my thing as a 16 year old with this 20 some year old because the girl could buy me alcohol and stuff so it was just kind of a win-win for a, a young man but i remember at one point like my my drug of choice was cocaine um then i've experimented with a lot but like at one point in my life i had given a, a acquaintance of mine a ride somewhere and it was literally just like right across the street just so he didn't have to walk and get his shoes dirty so I gave him a ride and he gave me a bag of heroin and I'm like, whatever. Like it was a party in age for me in that it, those years, you know? So yeah, I sniffed it and I'm whatever. Didn't think twice about it. And I'm on my way home. And then like, I just got this car off my dad that day. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I needless to say, I passed out and totaled my car into a tree, like within a 16th of a mile from my house. Um, ended up, I had a concussion, uh, glass all through my face and forehead, broken ribs, contusions on my lung, uh, pretty well delirious. I, I ended up coming to, and the car would start up. So I put it in reverse and drove home. I was so close, but like, um, after that, like I never touched that for like a long time. So like, then I went from there, like, like I said, I could, I, I partied, you know? needless to say and i you know started having kids of my own like i had a, a son when i was 16 um his name is jackson but um i ended up having jackson with my best friend's brother's girlfriend that i had moved in with when i was 16 and i ended up marrying this girl later down the road um but like i got with her um they had separated we got together and I had my son. Well, like I dropped out of high school because I was no good at learning from books. Um, so, uh, well, I went and got my GED so I could go to the military. 
you know, um, I dabbled in the military. I was still young. Um, you know, I was, I went in at 18. I had drank, drank soldiers, drank a lot. <laughs> um, so a lot of drinking and stuff. Um, and there was a few times where I had dabbled around, uh, with cocaine and stuff, but, but I had only made it through, uh, and this was after these parts, like where I was drinking and stuff. This came after my training. Cause I spent some time in training, you know, basic combat training, job training, all that. Um, so I get to my duty station at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and I was literally there for like a month drinking heavy and stuff before I had deployed overseas. And uh, I landed in Ramadi, Iraq with 369 armor uh, from 3rd Infantry Division um, in a tank division as a mechanic, tank mechanic. Um, so, yeah, I got to my unit and stuff and like, you know, being young and having my brain wired as this addict and not quite knowing it yet because. I had never really like went all out addict. Like, you know, I had little, little things like the Marine Corps birthday. They allowed everybody to have alcohol, you know, cause we wasn't allowed it. And, uh, well, everybody got a beer or two. Well, the people that didn't want theirs, I was taking their beer. You couldn't get alcohol through customs. So I'm like, mom, hook me up, send me a care package, put me some booze in a shampoo bottle. And so she does. And then she forgets to wash the cap. <laughs> so the whole bottle got cleaned pretty good, but she forgot to wash the cap. And uh, needless to say, it was pretty sudsy Jägermeister. And I mean, if you can imagine that. <laughs> uh, so it took a lot of Red Bull. Needless to say, we drank it. <laughs> uh, me and a buddy of mine. And I'll get to that too, because with him, but uh, we sat in the motor pool and drank that, you know, on top of the tank, which was, you know, a pretty cool story to tell, I guess. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I won't go into a lot of details with my overseas stuff, but like stuff happened, um, you know, uh, you know, anniversary dates of stuff like still affect me to this day. Um, but like I ended up coming home and I remember when I was overseas, like we got hazard duty pay and stuff. And I was telling my wife, like, look, buy me a bottle every payday while the whole time I'm here because we're having a big party when I come back. You know, and like I said, at this point, like the, it hadn't engaged like full addiction, full addict, like my hardwiring didn't kick in until later in life until like 23, 24 years old, about 10 years. Um, so I don't have like a lot of roots as far as like a lot of people that grow up and like start and just don't stop and got like 20 years in active addiction. Um, but for me, like I ended up coming home, we stopped in Germany, uh, on the way back um which where we were legal if we were under age of 21 to buy alcohol and drink alcohol so our ncos which are non-commissioned officers they let us purchase alcohol in germany and but we weren't allowed to drink it until we got stateside so they let us purchase it so i bought me some absinthe not the non-hallucinogenic kind um to add with my 10 other bottles that i had sitting on my kitchen counter from when i got home um had a big party uh woke up on the floor pants around my ankles kind of thing one of those wild nights i had dabbled in cocaine that evening so like it was all there it was present um but like i really didn't get the effects hardcore until after i got out of the service of like for me my addiction really turned when it comes to coping with my ptsd from combat and um so like because i fight ptsd pretty hard at times, like I would be in a recovery now, like I learned these coping skills and these 
you know, ways to go about my life and to deal with shit. So, um, so yeah, like I, I deal with it a lot better. Like, you know, uh, I mean, to me, like they say, there's outside issues within recovery, like things you don't shouldn't talk about. That's not an issue for recovery. But for me, they say that a lot about like mental illness and stuff, which like me and a, quite a few others, like for me, my mental illnesses from my combat tours and recovery go hand in hand. And like, so like when it comes down to it, like I still like I have anniversary dates from Iraq where I've had a hard time coping. I got out in 2010 and I think the past two years are the only two years that I've ever spent. Um, yeah. On New Year's Eve on my anniversary dates with not drunk with a pistol in my mouth. Um, so if that says anything on like my coping, you know, using drugs and stuff to numb those feelings, because like. It's a pretty heavy kind of feeling like when, you know, you're like, well, fuck, I could have died overseas and been a hero to, you know, died a hero to my kids and like blah, blah, blah. But now I'm going to die this junkie uh, with this history that I have now. So, but like I got, I got out and then like I ended up trying to fit back into the civilian world, man. Um, just really kind of the reintegration back into society. It's like it's so different. Like, like if I were there now in the service, trying to cope with the things I cope with, you wouldn't even tell. I wouldn't even know there's anything wrong with me because you're around the same kind of people that have done all the same stuff, that live the same lifestyles. Really, it wouldn't be go that. No, it wouldn't be that noticeable. It's kind of like uh, coming into recovery at first. We have a lot of, um. <laughs> you know, a lot of social anxieties and stuff like you don't fit in and, you know, and that's kind of the same thing coming from the service into civilian lifestyles. And so, um, I ended up getting divorced, um, which took a heavy, heavy toll on me, leaving my kids and stuff. And like, and I got, when I got out, like I started working in the coal mine. So like I'm in this dark, dirty, gloomy hole all day, every day, going through a divorce, away from my kids. No one gives a shit about my feelings. Like, so you just keep that stuff in and bottle, you know what I mean? Um, and then, like, at that point around there, like, it started, like, I started getting into cocaine heavier, you know, and uh, I ended up getting, meeting this girl at a house party. Um, if that should, you know, red flags, you know, for sure. Uh, definitely ignored those. Um, she was on pain prescription pain medication and like, and that was really my only time, like, which it lasted for a long time, but that was really my run with opiates is like prescription started with prescription painkillers. Like I got with this girl, she was on them. I was partying. So it was the thing to do. And, uh, so I started getting into the doing them with her every day, every day, every day until it come to the point, like, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing at first. So like when it come down to it, I couldn't do them and not be sick at this point. And like, I wake up one day and I'm like, man, I just want to get high and I don't want to go to works. But if I call off, they're going to, uh, they're going, they're going to fire me and I don't want that on my record. So here I am, you know, starting into this crazy addict behavior, a call and I'm like, Hey, I quit, you know, make $26 an hour just cause I wanted to go chase a high. So during home confinement, like, you know, I'm pretty good. Like when I have those, like I've always been good in my past with that stuff of like, I have the, this accountability over my head, you know, not wanting to go to jail and stuff. So like I wouldn't drink or, or use or anything like that. But then when it come down to it, like the addict in me at that point, like, I'm like, I'm going to find a way to do something. And so I'm at home 
drinking Robitussin and Robo tripping my ass off, uh, which I don't recommend hallucinogenics nor any drug, but hallucinogenics was a no go for me. I don't have that mentality. It's like we always know as addicts, we know the right thing to do, but we're hard, hardwired to, to leave that path of wreckage behind us, you know, and, and can't seem to get out of it. I got out off of home confinement. I did that time and then I had to do day report and I completely screwed that up. Like I was out getting high again, using um, cocaine and stuff. I had moved to Fairmont. Well, I spent, I ended up violating my day report and went and spent the rest of my six months. I think I spent four months in jail in North central regional jail um where in jail i learned how to make shake and bake methamphetamine i got introduced to a needle um and once i did once the first time with my drug of choice through a syringe it was a game over for me um it got to a point like i if i couldn't put it in a syringe i wasn't going to do it um i learned how to make this shake and bake methamphetamine of with your natural uh, over the counter chemicals and stuff that you can get at Lowe's and went on a little bender with that. Um, to the point, like I would was running myself broke. Now I got a significant amount of money for my VA compensation. And I don't know how many times I would like, I'm going out and then, uh, and then not come home. And then like, until it was like sun coming up, birds are chirping and i'm like i should probably stop now and then like check my bank account and i got like went from like twenty five hundred dollars to like two hundred dollars in a night out chasing crack so like at this point like i'm running myself broke constantly i'm not working because every job i get like i'm just i end up with other addicts and wasting all my money on drugs um to the point i start stealing so I wouldn't steal from anybody who had worked for their stuff because I know how I would feel. And uh, so I'm like, screw it, big business. They got lots of money to spare. So like I would go steal stuff from Walmart or Lowe's. And I won't go into like too much detail with that because like I've done my time, but I'm not going to take any chances incriminating myself. <laughs> I would go, there was this whole thing going on around this time where you could... If you go and steal stuff or stolen, you have someone else take it back to another Walmart well, or another Lowe's. Well, if you take it back without a receipt, you get a gift card. You go to the little Arab guy at the mall with his little stand. You're like, hey, I get you. I got a gift card. Gift card has $500 on it. The guy gives you 250 cash. So that was like a real big popular thing among the uh, addict community. When I got caught, so I thought I was slick and I had this big Carhartt jacket on and one of those like string bags with just the strings with the drawstring. And but I had the bag on my front and I'd clip the strings on the back. So I had the hole right here with this big jacket on and I would go to the breaker aisle and to the Dremel bits because like breakers, you can get like 40. They're like for 40, 50 dollars a pop. You know, along with breakers that go from like anywhere up to or Dremel bits that go from anywhere up to like 30 to 20 to a hundred dollars a bit. And I thought I was slick and I'd drop them down in the bag and drop them down in the bag and then not thinking and stuck something in my pocket. I'm getting ready to leave. And this big guy from security comes up and he's like, there's like two people blocking the door. He's like, I need you to come with me. And they take me to the 
back. And like the first thing they said was they started asking, they're like, so we see such and such is in the car, which he didn't even come in. He was parked in the parking lot. But like from where I had been there so many times, having people return these items for gift cards, they knew my whole operation and who it was. And like, so Lowe's is pretty on it with their, uh, their recon. Um, they're like, so we know such and such is in the car. Where's this person? Have you seen this person? Where's this person? We know you. And I'm like, man, they know everybody. And, uh, well, they're like, all right, well, where's the stuff? So I'm a funny guy. I pulled the thing out of my pocket and they're just kind of puzzled. Like, okay, we know you got more than that. And they start patting, which no one's going to think to pat the front because I was stealing little things. Well, I get nervous and I have a, like, I'm a brutally honest type of person. Like if I'm hit, I know I'm hit. Like, there's no way around it. So I'm like, all right. And I unzip, I unbuckle, and I just dump this bag out <laughs> on their table. And, uh, yeah, it was like $500 worth of breakers and Dremel bits in that little bag. Um, I didn't go to jail. I did get taken down to the police station and got fined because it was a first offense. I was getting so bad at that point. Um, I've been in and out of jail. Uh, I got to a really low point in my life and, uh, with my PTSD and with my drug abuse, I, uh, was, had been on a bender all night, um, and got into like an argument with someone who I was using with. And, uh, at this point I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I was like, I'm just going to drive my car off of a freaking bridge. And, uh, so I was emotional i was strung out i was a, a depressed post-traumatic disaster so i go up the hard road in my honda civic not wearing a seat belt so i, I was going 65 miles an hour i pulled the e-brake i was so sick of myself at that point in my life i pulled the e-brake let go of the steering wheel uh the car i lost control of the car in an attempt to kill myself um i hit an embankment the car at 65 miles an hour did a front flip um, I buckled over. I didn't hit my head. I was conscious and sober because I had, mind you, I had come down. Um, I buckled over the passenger seat. I felt it. Um, and then it just like slingshotted me. Now at this point, the car had landed on its top and it slingshotted me out the passenger window and the car, like I'm out from like my knees out. Like my only thing that's in still inside the car are my shins and this car come down like two inches from my face and then fell back this way. And like me and my addict state of mind at that point, like the people that I was with was right there and watched it happen. So they come flying up the road and I come crawling out of the car with a broken back. Mind you, I broke my back. Uh, I, I fragmented some discs in my back in that incident, um, otherwise unscathed. But I, uh, I crawled in my buddy's car. Well, my acquaintance's car. And I'm like, I look back and I see the car on top of an embankment with the headlights still on. And I'm like, man, if you turn the headlights off, you can't even see that car. So I get down and crawl back to my car and I climb inside and take the keys and turn it off. And then I crawl back to the car that he's driving and get in. And, uh, and I leave, you know, I mean, I had wrecked. I'm an addict. I'd been on a bender. So there's like needles everywhere, all through the car, all over the ground, which I didn't know it at this point because none of that even crossed my mind 
because of my mental state, I didn't care about anything else other than the self-centered feelings that I was feeling that I was, you know, and desperate to take my own life at that point. And, uh, so I get in this car, a car pulls up and they're like, Hey guys, are you all right? Now they couldn't see the car on there, but I'm covered in dirt and glass and blood. And they're like, yeah, we're like, yeah, it's fine. We're just having some car trouble. Well, someone had done called it in and we go past the fire department. Um, I see someone that works there that I know I'm like, man, don't call the law. It was me, but I'm good. And they're like, man, someone done called that in. We have to tell them we seen you. So they seen who I was with. And like I said, I got women in the family. They're always, you know, babies, no matter how big we get enablers. So I, uh, I went to this guy's house that I was with using with, and I'm there. And next thing I know, like I can't move and I'm in so much pain. And this guy gets a prescription of Opana 40s. I don't know if you know, Opana 40s are a prescription that like you have pretty much have to be, have a terminal illness and be dying to get these. And uh, so he gives me a handful of these and uh, you know, I take a few, well then there's a knock on the door and here come my aunt and she's like, you gotta go. The cops are on their way here. And uh, so I get in the car and I go to this other guy's house who had brought her over there. And then like I sat there in that house, like popping Opana's for like two days and listened to them search for me on the scanner. And uh, turns out like I go to the hospital and a state trooper, when I finally go to the hospital, cause I ran out of pain medication, this officer shows up and I had had run-ins with him when I was drunk and disorderly other times. And, uh, He's like, so why'd you run? I was like, man, that should have been like my third offense driving on suspended. I heard that's a felony. Now, mind you, it's only a felony if it's for DUI, uh, which it wasn't. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, let me check. You know, just giving me a hard time, calls it in. He's like, nope, it's your first one. And me, being the criminal addict mindset I got, I'm like, he hands me a paper and says, I need you to write this statement of what happened. And I wasn't going to write a statement. So I put my name on the top of this paper and then I instantly hit the button for the nurses and started screaming about pain in my back. Like, Oh, my back, my back, just to get this officer out of the room. And needless to say, they kissed I kept the nurses in there long enough. He ended up leaving. Um, later on, I had just got the staples out of my back from surgery. Um, I was using with my now ex, the mother of my youngest. And like, we were both pretty well, well, you know, strung out on drugs and she brought my son over. She brought him over to stay, but then like calls and is like, give me my son. I'm like, you just told me he could stay. Well, needless to say, there was an argument. Well, my aunt called the law. Um, my aunt called the law. Well, apparently when my aunt called the law, my ex had called the law prior I'm like, I just got on the phone. I'm like, there's no need to come out here. We're fine. And uh, so I go down the road and here sits my ex at the bottom of the road and a sheriff. And that's when I got picked up on my warrant for trying to steal the 60 inch flat screen like three months later. Um, and since then, I mean, it's just been. I'm going to try to shorten it up, but it's been pretty much a repetitive cycle. I haven't done too many inpatient treatments. I've been to one through the VA. Um, I, this is my second time in recovery. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah, this is my second time in recovery. I had a little over two years last time when I relapsed, but like, yeah, so I've only been to treatment one other one time. Um, I've done 
uh, well, I've done intensive uh, in outpatient treatment through the Mon County Justice System. So, like on that felony, I'm still actually facing charges for that, like or facing time. Like I did almost all of my five years. It's a one to five sentence. I done almost all my five years on paper on probation and violated uh, by catching more charges. Um, you know, DUIs, such like that while on probation, that's kept me like I'm working on come September. I'm on my sixth year of a one to five one in five years being the top number. So I'm going a little into the, uh, you know, extended scale. Um, but I am over one year clean now. I'll put that out there. Uh, so about a year and a week. What is today? I have one year and 10 days today. Um, so yeah, but other than, and I'm back in the drug court program for the second time. I'm like the only person in Monongalia County to have done this program twice. Um, but I'll, that's been pretty much my whole addiction. I also just want to say real quick that I'm proud of you and thank you so much for sharing. Definitely. Hey, no worries. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you yeah that's a, that's a big deal huge deal thank you thank so, do you enjoy dancing while burning calories that you consume throughout the day well you're in luck my name's Stephanie, and I am a dance-to-fit instructor based out of Morgantown, West Virginia. I offer dance fitness classes, which are full-body workouts. Um, I do it three times a month, every other Saturday, and one day during the week, typically 6.15 to 7.30. You can find me on Dance Fitness with Steph on Facebook to keep up on date with all of the events. Each class is $5 a person. Bring your friends and come and dance and have fun with us. We dance to Christian, hip-hop, pop, and even some country. There is something for everyone. We modify dance moves, so whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, your only competition is yourself. And we are back. So we just got done talking to Kez. Um, I think we're going to let Justin have the floor right now and see what he has for us. All right. I'm Justin. Uh, where do I start? Uh, when I was young, of course, I had mental illnesses, bipolar, ADHD stuff. Um so I, I was wild. Uh, I was on Ritalin, stuff of that nature. Um, my dad, he was a hellion. Um, I ended up, me and a good buddy of mine, Bill Bill, we were young, about, I, I can't even remember the age. We snuck in my dad's room. He sold pot. And uh, we stole his one-hitter and some weed. We went out in the car, and we hotboxed it. And he came outside and beat both of our asses. But then he enabled me. He's like, well, if you boys want to do shit, you're going to do shit with me, so I know what you're getting is safe. So from that point on, it was 
party with dad. Dad became a friend, not a dad. So we started partying, hanging out, started drinking young, going to Fortney Mills, doing cocaine, fucking everything under the sun. Um, really wild time. Like I was 12 years old, drunk as shit, driving my dad home because he was too drunk to even stand up. Um, from Fortney Mills to Healthy Heights Trailer Park. Um, so, and that's pretty decent ways. Um, then I, I got just a little bit older. I got locked up when I was 14 years old as a juvenile, skipping school and stuff, um, doing all kinds of crazy things because I was on drugs. Um, the truancy offer, officer showed up at my mom's house um, out on River Road. Uh, we lived in a little trailer by the old Gabbard's gas station. And uh, my mom smelt something burning. And the truancy officers did too whenever they came there to get me. And uh, they called the fire department. Well, fire department came out and they located it down to my register vent, which, of course, I had a bunch of drugs and stuff I had stashed in my register vent. You pulled it up, there's metal flap, you push it down and stick it in the insulation put it up while well, i was a kid i didn't think the heat or nothing would melt the plastic and start smelling but they they found my stash they pull it out and there was an ounce of marijuana and like 30 fucking straws uh packed clear full of cocaine pills everything under the sun like they would shine flashlights through each one of the straws and it looked like little like uh tips of a needle um, you couldn't see anything through them. They took a coat hanger and pushed through them. And I mean, just massive piles of white powder laying there. Um, so then they took me away. I was away, uh, for a while. Um, I was in placement, met my daughter's mom, um, we would get weekend passes. I'd come home every weekend and sneak up to her dad's house or she'd sneak to my mom's house. Uh, and she ended up getting pregnant, uh, and while I was still locked up with her. Um, so like we're at this placement, she's pregnant and stuff. We're keeping it hush hush. I turn 18, um, get released. I come home straight into active addiction again. Uh, I'm running around doing cocaine. Uh, my favorite thing was crack. Uh, you know, I've, I don't know how many times I've stroked out or blacked out on crack. Um, you know, I was, I was so bad. I would get to the point, um, me, this is a little farther down the road, but I'm just going to give you an example how bad I was. Me and this guy, Robin, um, 
we would go to Uniontown and we would pick up three quarters of an ounce two, three times a week. And we would sell half and smoke half. So you you add all that up and just think how much I'm smoking within a month's time. We did this for six months straight. While I was driving down the road with cruise control on, 90 miles an hour, in a uh, little Nissan truck and his extended cab. And uh, I, I was driving and I took a, a chunk of crack the size of my thumb. And it was over a gram. I stuffed it down in this big porcelain tube I had. And uh, I hit it with two little propane torches. And off to the races it was. But whenever I hit it, uh, everything went black. My whole body went numb. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't respond. I couldn't do nothing. I was stroking out. Uh... So luckily, he catches it. He reaches over, grabs the steering wheel, reaches across my lap, and uh, he flips the lever for the back seat to fall down. And uh, the back of the seat fell down. He unbuckled me. The whole time, we're still going 90 down the freeway, and he's trying to control it and you know manage to get me in the back of the cab and the extended cab part. Then he climbed over in the driver's seat and, like, rushed me to the hospital and just dropped me off outside. Um, back to the the basics of it. Um, I started dabbling around in uh, LSD and everything else, PCP, Angel Dust. Like, I got really dark whenever it came to drugs and addiction really quick at a young age um i started hanging around with a guy i knew his day his name was david romanowski they called him romo um he tried a couple times i was even on heroin he uh he brought me in his house and put me on his couch and took pain pills the yellow school buses and winged me off a of heroin on his couch. Um, and uh, we started dabbling around, doing other stuff or whatever. And at that point in time, he wasn't into anything else. He was just in the weed. And, you know, I'd smoke weed with him, sell weed, whatever. And um, I would also, they were older so I also felt obligated, you know, he's kind of like a father figure, dude saved my life, helped me get off heroin, um, you know, he's looking out for me, giving me a place to stay, everything else, so I took it upon myself, like, in Morgantown, and all around, everybody fucking knows me because of this, but, um, I started out as what people consider a wingman. You know, I was his little buddy, his little wingman, you know, sell weed for him, do whatever. And then um, one night somebody came and set his truck on fire in front of the house. Well, me being the idiot that I am, because I have psych issues too, 
and um, me being in my active addiction, I uh, took two hits of acid, snorted a big line of uh, ketamine, and drank a couple Canadian beers, um, the triple X's or whatever, and we had mortars there. So I knew who did it, um, and uh, I, I took five mortars, and I put the wicks together, and then I laid out aluminum foil, and I took them little metal beads out of an airsoft gun, and I laid them out on the aluminum foil, and then sat all five of them bombs on top of it, and like wrapped the foil around it. And then uh, taped it up with black tape. Well, I, I went walking with my buddy uh, to Jerome Park, where this dude lived. We uh, we went there, and sure enough, you know, me being out there, not a care in the world, tripping my ass off. Um, he was standing outside, and uh, I walked up. And he just kind of looked at me stunned and I hit him and his head hit the door and he kind of like slumped down some. And the whole time my buddy's videotaping this, um, I retched my coat and I grabbed that makeshift bomb I had and I lit it and I like dropped it in it like by his lap and uh, I took off running well, I went running down before I could get down over the hill. They start going off. Boom, 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 boom. Lighting Jerome Park up. You can hear windows breaking and stuff from the little metal BBs. Um, and it messed him up pretty bad. He had to go hospital. One of the mortars, like, blew up and went under a uh, police officer's car because a police officer actually lived next door, and that's how carefree i was in my addiction i didn't care at all um but needless to say got away with it went back um my buddy played the videotape for him and stuff and he said i went nuts that night so instead of being his wing man he gave me a nickname wing nut i had my own apartment at that time me and a buddy were living together um of course we were always partying you know we worked at mcdonald's so we were carrying on partying i was selling drugs um and gradually as i was selling i was moving up a little bit uh and my buddy um he he kind of like fell back some and let me take over the reins of like his enterprise that he had built and so it, things got even crazier um there's been multiple times like you know i should have died i've i've had a person drive by he started revving his engine, went by, and just started freely firing out the window. I've been, I went in and out of jail several times in between there. Um, I, I kept getting out, getting right back into drug addiction, um, doing drugs in jail, uh, hustling COs into bringing me shit in. 
Um, you know, as it, it was a crazy tactic time. Um, I've I've had some some rough issues, um, like Kevin said, our parents and stuff kind of enabled us. Um, I'd come home fucked up or cranky, haven't been home in forever. I'd come home messed up or cranky or whatever, or needing a fix or whatnot, and feel like shit for today but my mom would give me her last penny just for me to go get right so she wouldn't have to deal with my bullshit and i live with that every day because she's dead and gone now it 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 got hectic um there's a couple times you know i i almost blew a detroit boy's head off in the house one day would have been spending the rest of my life in jail for murder but um he came there and uh at first he came there and he left and whenever he left one of the guns that we had in the house was missing and we couldn't find it so whenever he came back i confronted him about it and got pissed off and then uh he wouldn't let us get any cocaine or nothing which was what he sold at that point and we just dabbled in some other shit so i got pissed off about it and me being in my fucked up mentality thinking that he already stole from me and you know he's too good to sell me anything i took a uh a 45 and i put it to his head and i started squeezing the trigger but this 45 i had was like a double action you have to squeeze the handle of it to like engage it before you can squeeze the trigger or it won't go off um so luckily i i I didn't know that i just put it to his head started squeezing um my buddy dave he shoved me away he's like wingnut calm down you know chill out um the dude ended up leaving uh and then from that point on we started talking and we were like you know fuck this we ain't gonna go without um we're we're tired of people you know taking taking control of our life so we started dealing and everything cocaine crack heroin uh ecstasy you know the whole nine yards and doing the shit as well like you know we had a stash box uh little stash box that had anything and everything in it and just whatever you felt like doing that day or whatever you know you just get in that box and you dabble and whatever um so that's what we did and uh we ended up getting ripped off um we had a shipment of marijuana come in through the mail. Um, this happened in 2015. We had a shipment of marijuana come in, and we had an organized system set up. Um, we had three kids. They Well, I say kids, but they were 18, 19, and 20. I'm 25 at the time. They... Uh, they were supposed to watch the drop spot because it was ordered through the mail. Um, they were supposed to watch it for about three hours or so. 
everything good. They pick it up, bring it to us. We'd break them off for watching it. It was a decent size shipment. We ain't gonna go into all the details, but um. Anyways, this we did it a couple times before that for like months, and everything went well. Well, this time it was a decent amount compared to what we dabbled with before. So they got greedy and took off with all of it, um, which was a lot of money. Uh, so me being an idiot normally i did things on my own anytime i've had to handle something or go do something or you know um whatever it was for them i always did everything alone you never take someone with you and uh of course like an idiot i let him talk me into taking this guy with me so he gives me a ride we go over to uh west run apartments this dude was sitting there and he kept fucking talking in a foreign language i say some choice things i'm not gonna say on here and i'm like fucking speaking english and uh he he wouldn't speak in english which was really getting me hyped and pissed off because i was on pcp that night and uh i was fucking losing it like you know, I'm nuts as it is, and that just don't make it any better. My uh, co-defendant, he smacked that dude in the face with pistol, and uh, blood splattered, and, you know, he dropped a little fake gun or whatever. I grabbed it real quick, realized it was a fake gun, threw it back down, and uh, this other dude tried, like, charging, and I took my pistol, and I backhanded him with it, and laid him wide open. Um, he he's still speaking in his foreign language, like freaking out. Goes to reach in his pocket, and that you know, at this point, I'm already on edge. You know, shit's going on. So I had a Smith and Weston MP40. That's my that was my gun of choice that night. My co-defendant had a, a Beretta 380, and uh, I take this. Smith and Weston MP40, and I pistol whip him with it. But instead of backhanding him, I hit him the other way. So whenever I hit his head, the barrel went across the side of his head and kind of pushed back against my finger, which pulled the trigger. So, boom, a 40 cow went clear through fucking wall of this apartment complex. And it scared me at the same time, so I dropped the gun, and then I'm like, shit, I hurry up, grab the gun again, and, uh, you know, they're all fucking leaking out of their faces and shit. We fucked all their faces up. Um, we recovered all the stolen goods, went back to the, my buddy's house. He's like, listen, you know, the cops probably coming. He's like, you need to get the fuck out of here, blah, blah, blah. Um, here's some money, here's some cash, you know, here's some shit to keep you right, whatever, you know, get the fuck out of here. So, I take the fuck off. Meantime, while we're doing this, um, cause I ain't leaving until the next morning, the kids are in the hospital, and, uh, they give statements on us, 
they tell the whole nine story to lay out of the house who I am, what my alias is, um, what I look like, showed them who I am on Facebook, uh, you know, told them where the house was, the address, the whole nine yards, where to look for me. They went and got an aerial view, view of the house. Um, next day, I left early in the morning, and they showed up like 20 minutes after I left. They had the house surrounded and stuff. My buddy's old lady, and we couldn't figure out what she was saying at first, but then she, she told us that, you know, Dave, my buddy, like my best friend that I stayed with and everything, you know, um, he got shot and killed by the cops. They kicked in the door, um, you know, with a warrant looking for me and my co-defendant. And whenever they kicked in the door, how his house worked was you go through the door and then you immediately turn right and go through another door and it was his bedroom. Well, when they kicked the door in, it, it flew open and hit that wall. That's, you know, goes to his bedroom. So instantly, you know, instinctively, he's thinking he's getting robbed again or something. He don't know what the fuck's going on. So he goes to roll over out of bed to find out what's going on. And for us being considered armed and highly dangerous and all this bullshit they put on the news, they thought that he had a weapon. So they uh, shot him three times in the upper right torso and they ended up dying from it. Um, and I got that news while I was at that place. I fucking lost it. I started doing all kinds of shit. I was <clears throat> all over the place. Um, you know, I I had it in my head that I was going to take the guns I had and I was going to track down every person that had involvement of his death and I was going to get rid of them and whatever else. I was already going to prison, so it didn't matter. Um, and then I seen my face on the news. Um, you know, wanted man in Morgantown. First degree armed robbery, um, you know, highly armed and dangerous. Do not apprehend the suspect. Um, you know, if you see him, call the cops, whatever. So that freaked me out. I'm like, fuck, man, you know, the marshals are after me. I take off and I go out River Road where I know best. And I'll go out by my grandma's house. And uh, I'm in my van, and friggin' uh, lo and behold, who shows up? Kevin and my mom and everyone else, you know, they all come around, and uh, they begged me and pleaded with me to, you know, not to run and make shit worse, just go and do whatever, and they would make sure I was okay the whole time, so... I'm like, fuck, man. I uh, I prepare for this. I don't care who thinks what about it. I was a fucking addict. And, you know, I knew I was going to jail. So I made me a couple plugs. And I put them in my fucking rectum. And I took them to jail with me. <laughs> but I, uh, 
it was the most worst experience of my fucking life because I had to turn myself in at the police station to the U.S. Marshals. And I thought they were going to kill me. They come out with guns blazing. And I hurried up and laid down on the ground and, like, you know, wouldn't move nothing. They snatched me up in their little military suits and take me in there and handcuff me. And for 14 fucking hours straight was, like, interrogating me, trying to fucking break me. And I'm sitting there this whole time uncomfortable as hell because I'm a fucking dude. And I got something in my fucking rectum that needs to come out. Um, so I learned my lesson on that kind of shit, you know, but that's how addicted I was. I ain't care how uncomfortable I was. I was taking the fucking pack in there and I was going to live as long as I could off of it. But they tried to charge me with two counts of first degree armed robbery, two counts of conspiracy during commission of felony, two counts of assault during commission of felony, and two counts of prohibited person in possession of firearm. The prosecutor at the time, uh, she was running for head prosecution. She told me, she said, Mr. Nizel, I ain't got much, but I got enough to where I think if I can get one juror to say you're guilty, I can convince the rest. She's like, and I'm if you make me do that, I'm going to ask for the maximum. So I stuck it out, stuck it out, stuck it out. Two weeks before trial, they came to me and they're like, listen, they're like, if you go ahead and you sign this deal... They're like, we'll just plea you down to a nighttime burglary, which is a 1 to 15, and a wanted endangerment for the pistol and all that. Um, They're like, which is a 1 to 5. They're like, we'll ask that they be ran together, and, you know, we won't have to go trial or nothing. But if you make me waste this time and this money and this effort going to trial and I get a conviction, she's like, I'm going to bury you under that prison. I went ahead, pleaded guilty to it, and uh, it started my time. Um, I went to Huttonsville Correctional Center. I was there for three years, two months, um, the first time. Ended up like a fucking blooming idiot, thinking that I had to be a part of something. Joined the Aryan Brothers. Um, ended up getting in a fight with my own Aryan Brothers. Uh, got jumped and hospitalized because I sat at a table and ate food with a black guy. They broke my eye socket, fractured my jaw, broke my nose, busted three ribs. Um... Yeah, and my neck's messed up to this day. I got out 2019, January 17th. Uh, I was doing good for the longest time. I'd still sneak around and dabble with alcohol and, you know, take a couple puffs off weed or whatever. I was on parole, <laughs> you know, doing this stupid shit. That's how bad my addiction was. I, I still couldn't say no, even being on state's parole, knowing that I could go right back. Um, but I ended up getting custody of my daughter. Um, 
I had her. We were doing great. Um, her mom started a bunch of shit, got CPS involved in her life. That's the reason why I ended up with her, because CPS and stuff took her from her. And anytime you're involved with a CPS case, whether it was you or the other parent, um, they still keep tabs on both of you, um, regardless. So, uh, I was, you know, doing all right. I started dabbling around in drugs. It got to a point I failed four piss tests for methamphetamines. Um, my parole officer was going to lock me up. I, I was in prison. Uh, I did the RSAT program in prison. Um, in the mix of the RSAT program, yeah, like I, I had to do another two years. So in the mix of doing that two years, I did the RSAT program. In the mix of doing the program, my mother was sick with cancer and uh she ended up passing and i got lucky i didn't get to go see her or nothing like that but they gave me three uh 15 minute video calls with her for free and then they let me use a landline in the office to talk to her um for as long as i needed to and um i got to talk to her and i got to video her like the day the days prior to her passing even the day before and we got to say a lot of our goodbyes and you know a lot of things that we needed to say to each other and um then she passed and you know, the whole time I was in jail at this point, I, I didn't touch nothing. I didn't do nothing. Um, I was staying clean for my mom. That way I could try to get back home to my mom because she is sick. But she didn't make it until I got home. Um, and she she died 14 days after my birthday. Um I made her a promise I'd stay clean. I would be a good dad. I would do everything I had to. Um, you know, I, I I can't I can't change. I I can't take that promise back and then remake it again. It don't work like that. So I've been keeping that promise to my mom. Um, I did everything I had to do. Uh, I got released from prison on parole again. Came home to a halfway house, which is where I'm living now. Um, all about recovery. Uh, you know, star working steps, stuff like that. And um, I go meetings. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in meetings, a lot of good literature and everything that people could learn from, um, you know, the people and the friends in the rooms and my sponsor and my girl, they're, uh, all the ones that keep me sane and keep me sober today. But I have two years, four months and 17 days today 
cling. Um, so it can be done. You just gotta hang in there. You know, we've had some twisted times and we got some twisted stories and that's just a quick brief, you know, fly through of my life story. There's a lot more to it than that. It can be done. So, Jess, do you have anything that you'd like to add or ask? Yep, just one thing. Um, If you guys, both of you, could give advice on, number one, how to start recovery, and number two, how to stay on it, for anybody who's listening who might be going through whatever you've been through. You want to take the pitch? Yeah, I was just about to say I'll take the wheel. Really, like, the biggest part of entering recovery, you have to want it. You can't force recovery. You can't, you know, uh, you can educate all you want, but until someone is completely and utterly loses their desire to use, uh, in my case, I got completely sick and tired of myself, you know, and I knew I had to do something different. So, like, as far as coming into recovery, um, for someone who might be struggling, there's all kinds of, uh, people you can reach out to, uh, organizations like NA, for example, NA is a big, very big part of mine and Justin's life. Um, and you can do it anywhere. Uh, it is, a you know, it's, for those that don't know, it stands for narcotics anonymous, uh, but it's worldwide. So like you can, as far as like those key tags, Justin's holding up, you know, they come and you can get them that with their Arabic writing, Russian writing, like there, it is a worldwide organization and there's meetings in every city and every country in the world. Um, so as far as getting into recovery, uh, the best that, and everybody's welcome, you know, the best thing you can do is show up, uh, lose that desire, you know, and that's the first step to it really is, uh, is showing up. And, you know, that just shows right there that there is some kind of desire. Um, Option two, I don't recommend, uh, you know, like so many addicts that have come before and after me, I come to recovery through the legal system. Um, you know, otherwise I would have never known anything about NA recovery. I knew no one but using addicts. So, but the justice system got my foot in the door, um, which again, I don't recommend, but because the option is out there otherwise, um, but yeah, uh, anyone struggling? I mean, there's so many detox centers and rehab facilities that take state uh, insurances, um, you know, and there's an abundance of um, resources that can be utilized, you know, and researched. So it's all available. Uh, there's in a, sites like na.org uh, where you can find local meetings. Um, in your areas. Um, but yeah, so like the first step, man, that's the best I can say is you gotta, you got, you have to want it. Um, until someone wants it, there's really not much anyone else can do for them. But then you come into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and I mean, it's a crazy thing. The traditions and stuff that we live on, it's like one addict helping another, like who would have thought that, you know, a bunch of former, junkies if for lack of better word i mean hey i put myself in that bracket you know uh, but who would have thought like 
that these are the people that are helping me stay clean. That are teaching me how to live by like, like you lose that desire and it's the whole, it's a, it's a practical application thing. So you have to apply these things to your life. You go to NA to learn how to live and then you have to take it outside the rules, but it's out there. It's available. Yeah. One addict helping another addict is without parallel. Without parallel that's, yes. That's one of the things we say. Um, these cool little key tags, as Kevin touched on, they're what we get for clean time. This white one is the most important one we have. It's for the get newcomers. It. Okay. Um, we'll have to be clean to get you, it. No, you don't have to be clean to get it. It's cheaper than a dope bag, better than a toe tag. Um, cheaper than so, meth, better than death. Yes. So you don't have to be clean to get it. You just have to have a desire to want to stop using. Um, and then we go on a little farther. <laughs> this orange, this orange one. Okay. Aren't you glad you ain't wearing it? All right. It's for 30 days. Color means. You're in that yeah. jump. You don't want to be wearing <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. But that, that one was for 30 days. Uh, clean time. Uh, best green in town. It's, it's for 60 days. Red. We got red here. Uh, you know, add some gotta blood back little, to your dope stream. Got to put a little blood back in the dope stream. Yeah, for uh, ninety. My days. son put these on me. By the way, yeah, yeah. We don't get, get the orange one, but don't get it like this. All right. Uh, we have we have the blue one here. It's textbook blue for uh, six months. Um, we have the bright yellow key tag. I'm not going to say yellow. Yeah, banana yellow. You're part of the bunch. Yeah. Uh. But it's for nine months. We have the glow in the dark one for. So you don't have to blow in the park <laughs> unless you want to. No, it's glow <laughs> in the dark so your sponsor can see you in the raves. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, we have duct tape gray. Stick for and stay. Stick and stay. Duct yes. tape gray. Yep. Stick and stay. Duct tape gray. We have. The black and gold, which is one of the last ones you get for multiple years of recovery. Because everybody um, has multiples. Yeah, two, black, two or black. more years. Uh, yeah, two or more years clean. Um, so that's the rundown on the key tags. But yeah, like but there Kevin is that said, one that's so nice. We offer it twice in case yes, anybody's coming back from a relapse. Wants to find a new way to live, you gotta come get this white yeah. key tag. Yeah, or if you're too high, too shy, or too fly to come hug this guy. <laughs> but that's what we do in meetings. Every time you get up and you get your key tag, um, you're greeted by people with hugs, claps, um, very supportive system. Um, all you you can walk into a NA uh, room uh, anywhere. It don't matter. It's nationwide. You can walk into any NA organization. You will be welcome. No one will judge. Um, you can walk into AA if you have a problem with it. It's the same basis as NA. Um, 
it's just you know you get chips those na NA, 12-step programs you go through uh there's 12 traditions that you live by uh there's 12 12 steps that you go through starting at step one and you go by the book and do these or however your sponsor particularly does it they have step working worksheets you know uh but it's not a there's not like no cookie cutter way to do recovery um, yeah a lot of people work steps and that's what's suggested you know as addicts that are recovering that's like what we learn to do is to take suggestions and use them because i mean you like what you're taking suggestions from someone who's been through what you've been through or or had to get through a similar situation of whatever variety so like you know uh when it comes down to it like you're not alone never alone never again um you know and there's nothing you can go into a a narcotics anonymous meeting and say that you know and and surprise anybody um you know so there's like no need for you know to feel indifference or intolerance um because i mean as a prime example here on justin's segment of this podcast you know we come from like the darkest corners of this earth, but, and, and you know, and, but we come to find this light on the bright, uh, you know, the other side and like the grass is definitely greener, you know, um, it, it's crazy, man. Uh, I mean, I can't really express how grateful I am. Like I was completely and totally sick of myself, you know, to a complete and total point of rock bottom, complete desperation, borderline homeless, worried nothing about the drug you know uh, here i am over a year clean uh living my life like you know i'm in my own place at this um, you know with furniture <laughs> so you know which is a plus you know um yeah because i mean there's too many men that are out there that like fight this disease and they fight it alone and they live in it and you know under bridges and uh you know, couch hop, wherever, like it don't matter. Yeah. Like, you know, it's this disease. You, so total self-destruction. So like, and the only way to get past that is to, you have to lose that desire. And, you know, cause help is out there. It comes in the craziest forms you could ever think of. Like who would have thought like this guy that just got, got done telling his story, like, you know, would be sitting in front of anybody with two two years clean you know, and living a normal, productive life and being a productive member of society, you know, or me, like, for example, like, you know, there's a lot of uh, my darker, more criminalistic things I left out in mine, you know, uh, some of those Justin was there, but like took me knowing him and him knowing me and the dark corners that we've come from to like see even him come this far, like I can't express like how grateful I am for him and for myself to really be alive today, man. Uh, I've been on the break of death many times. So, I mean, uh, at my own hands at times, uh, at the hands of others a time or two. I got this, I don't know if you can see it on here, I got this nice uh, nifty scar on my eyebrow from, you know, uh, a baseball bat. The a night someone tried to take my life over eighty dollars worth of cocaine. Uh, yeah, man, like we're here, we're living, we're breathing. Recovery is possible. Uh, you gotta want it. Yeah, 
you you must want it you you have to absolutely positively want it like yes i promised my mother and you know i told her i'd do everything i'd have to and that's reason why to extent but the the truth of the matter is i was sick and tired of being sick and tired i could not stand it no more i didn't want to do it for anyone else i had to do it for myself and i wanted to do it for myself so i did um and what i suggest um like I said, go into an NA meeting, sit down, fill it out. Um, there's plenty of them. If you don't feel right at the first one, go to a different one, fill it out some, fill out the people. Um, whenever you get there, people will give you numbers on a list with their names. Uh, they tell you in every meeting you go to that the newcomer is the most important meet person, person. at any Yes, uh, you know, They're most important person at any meeting, because like I said earlier, one addict helping another addict is without parallel. And we can only keep what we have by giving it away. So therefore, the people like me and people farther in recovery like me, um, we and Kev we can help and give suggestions on how we've made it this far. And that's what them numbers are for. And you can call them. I can tell you exactly how that is. We've all chased dope. Sorry, Justin. We've all chased dope. We've all chased those dragons. We've all chased those demons. When you come into recovery, you literally have to chase recovery like you chase the dope. Because every day is a fight for your fucking life. You know, yes. especially today, man, like you can't use cocaine. You can't use f- methamphetamine. You can't smoke weed without it have fentanyl in it. You know, it's no different than a, a rat going in uh, like, hey, I'm just going to sift out through this box of decon and figure out what the flavor is for the day because it's going to fucking kill you. Like, I don't know who all is going to hear this podcast and stuff or what areas, but like I know in my area, I'm 34 years old. And when it comes down to it. Almost, I'd have to say it's pushing like 50% of the people that I know and went to high school with. Maybe not 50%, that might be a little far. But a very vast majority of my generation is dead and dying still, you know, from not being able to escape this disease. Like, I had a very short stint with, you know, fentanyl in my life. And my whole story, out of the past 10, 12 years I've used, and when it comes down to it, I used fentanyl for six months maximum and died four times and i'm not even talking about like i wasn't out there like people nowadays will go out and you know uh inject or use however you do it you know a half a gram a gram of fet- uh, you know meth or not meth fentanyl or heroin and it takes a match head worth of fentanyl to kill someone with no tolerance and i would literally i've died on ten dollars worth of heroin fentanyl four times and uh you know and to even try to do any drug nowadays now they're putting it in cocaine they're putting it in methamphetamine everything has now they have actually i don't know if you've heard justin they have this uh new drug they're calling trank and trank and i now 
And that's another thing I'll touch on real too. I come from the darkest corners of the earth. I'm an Alice student at WVU, West Virginia University. Uh, in my English classes, I've been doing a lot of research on comorbidity with PTSD uh, versus with, you know, comorbid with um, substance use disorder. And um, so I've been doing a lot of research and now they have this stuff called Trank. And what they're doing is they're taking benzodiazepines, diazepines, and pressing them, which no one's um, in addiction is from unfamiliar with pressed medications that are made at home. You buy a press, you can get one on fucking Amazon. But they're now putting fentanyl in with benzodiazepines and selling it, and they're calling that shrank. And I mean, just benz. I mean, it's liquid pill, pill form of alcohol. The benzos, it's pill form of alcohol. Like there's, it's just, it's in everything, and there's no way to avoid it. it you know, because people were trying to get you in that state of, man, I just did a bunch of cocaine last night, but now I'm sick today. So I'm obviously going to have to go do more cocaine to feel better because of the fentanyl that they're putting in the stuff. Or I'm smoking meth and now I feel like shit. So I'm going to go get some more to feel better when all it's doing is it's addicting someone to fentanyl. And once they get that addiction, you know, it's a wrap and they just kept coming back and coming back and they buy more, they buy your, but, but eventually it kills them. Like it don't make no sense why you'd want to kill off your clientele, but that's what it's doing. It's literally poison these days. It's not, there's no social, uh, social events. It does. It's not what it is. Like, it's not like that no more, you know, however anybody may know addiction, like, you know, we've all seen the movie blow. Like they all look like they was having such a great time, but that ain't the case. Cause like one can kill you. You know, just one incident can kill you, uh, but it, it's completely and utterly possible to get this white key tag from one day up to a year or multiple years, you know, um, and, and the, the proof is just in the pudding. Like I can sit here and preach recovery myself all day, but until you go into a room of Narcotics Anonymous and see someone sitting in that chair that, you know, eight years 30 years like there's a lot of clean time out there and like what it tells you man is that it's possible you know the people that are in those rooms are the misfits of society that have come from the darkest corners of earth and today you'd never know it you know uh because they're living full healthy productive you know lifestyles man and they're healthy and doing good and uh, and it's great, man. It's just great that like so many people like that can come together. Um, you know, learn how we learn how to make amends. Uh, we learn how to, to make, you know, self amends. It's a lot of self care. Um, cause a lot of uh, addiction is, is really the lack of self love and self care. Um, you know, cause like we don't know how to cope with it outside of using drugs. So when it comes down to it, and we stop using that drugs, you, you feel, feel that empty hole that we call the void, um, which will easily turn into, you know, sex, gambling, shopping. And when it comes to those things, what we learn in those rooms is how to deal with these things. Like I'm noticing something's wrong with me that I'm doing something, acting out of character. So I'm going to call somebody and get a suggestion and I'm going to use it because I might not be using drugs, but I'm using other forms of other shit to fill this hole that I feel inside of me where drugs used to be. And this rooms teach you how to deal with that, you know, and it's just a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful fucking yeah. thing. Yeah. And back, back to 
another thing, like I was saying, um, had to let Kev take the reins there for a minute. But you go in the meetings, like I said, find a meeting that is comfortable for you. And you sit down in chair, just listen the first time. Listen, listen to people's stories, listen what they have to say. Um, get that paper with them numbers on it and utilize them. You put them to use. Whenever you feel you're struggling, call someone. Someone will be there. They will pick up. They will help you and try to walk you through it. If um, one won't answer, call another. Then you call another. Yeah. Then you call another. Yeah, go through the list. And um, you you can also make, a, you know, in a group, your home group. Um, I have a home group. I go to it uh, twice a week. Um, you can also get a sponsor at a, in a uh, group. It's someone that you talk to, you fill them out, you talk to them, um, get to know them a little bit, you know, and if you like them and you feel comfortable talking to them, stuff like that, you know, you ask them to sponsor you. And what a sponsor is, is they'll help you work steps, but they're or also they're all steps. Yeah, and they're also like your backbone um, whenever it comes to recovery and stuff like that. If you have a problem, anything, call your sponsor. Your sponsor will answer. Your sponsor will talk to you. Your sponsor, if they're a good sponsor, should have most of the answers and most of the things you need and should be good enough if you pick the right one to talk you out of the worst situations possible. Well, hold on. Um, Let me back you tri- back you up here, buddy, for real quick. So the worst thing you can do coming into NA is to set expectations on any person. You always have to remember you're all addicts. There's always a possibility. If you got 10 years, one year, there's always a possibility for relapse. So when it comes down to it, they're a guide. But, you know, but if they can't help you, they will point you in the right direction. So... I'm not to trying to yeah. contradict you there, cuz just uh, yeah, you know. But don't yeah. go into any NA meeting with expectations of anybody. Just go into that. You got to go into an NA meeting with the one thing and one thing only, and that is a complete utter desire that I'm not going to get high no matter what today, like yes. one day at a time. If I can get through today, and some people got to break it down. By minute by minute, I'm not going to get high in the next five minutes. I'm not going to get, you know, and whatever it takes, man. But like, and I want to elaborate because you've you've triggered a couple of things that like I wanted to touch without. But like how he said, picking up that phone, like the biggest thing in recovery is your support. So you got to build that support. You got to build that support Mm -hmm. system. You got to get phone numbers and utilize them. And like a thing I heard in, in the rooms myself during one of my meetings, you know, and I still say it to people these days because it stuck with me so hard is like a lot of addicts, they'll, uh, they won't want to pick up that phone, you know, and because that's, what's going to save your life is the person on the other end that's going to help you out. But when it comes down to it, that phone feels real fucking, yeah, I want to curse, but hey, it feels real, real fucking heavy. But when it comes down to it, that phone might be heavy, but your coffin is going to be a lot heavier. So, I mean, if you weigh out your options, I pick up this phone or I have six people that love me carry my box, you know, and, and for me, that's enough to pick up that phone and build that support group because those are the people that's going to keep me out of that box. 
Uh, and that's like one of the biggest mistakes people will come is you come, you isolate, you're the guy that sits in the back of the room. You don't get to know nobody. You don't fellowship after the meeting. You know, you don't get phone numbers. You don't use them. And those are all things not doing those things is what's going to send somebody back out there. Like in, in recovery, if you're not actively doing things in your life to stay clean, if you're not building a, a support system and utilizing that support system, it's merely called abstinence. And as time has repeated itself for many, many, every addict, we can't do it alone. If I was capable of doing, staying clean on my own and, and you know, and living my long, you know, long story short, my best thinking got me where I am. My best thinking's landed me in prison. My, you know, best thinking has left me dead on a bathroom floor. My best thinking has caused me to make criminal charges and to not consider anyone else but myself. And that's what my, you know, to make bad decisions. And that's what my best thinking gives me. So when I pick up that phone, what that phone gives me is the opportunity to take a suggestion from someone who's going to give me the right piece of advice. You know, they're going to give me something that, you know, that I'm going to try to take away from that. And they're going to talk me down and talk me out of that. And if they can't help me, they'll point me in a direction that someone will. If they can't point me in a direction, well, I come into a meeting and I get multiple, multiple phone numbers and I got to call those phone numbers and call each person, even if I don't know them and I need help and I need help and I need help until I feel completely and utterly relieved, which it won't always go away. So I won't say completely and utterly, but you got to get that sense of relief. And that's what, like I referred to chasing the recovery, like you did the dope, because I promise you anybody listening to this podcast and active addiction. When it comes to your dope and your next fix, you'll pick up that phone. If he ain't got it, you're going to call this guy, and Joe Schmo's got it. If Joe Schmo didn't have it, oh, willy-nilly, he over here, he's got it. So you're going to call all these people and chase that dope, and that's the same thing. If you want to stay absolutely clean today, you pick up that phone and you call this guy, and I'm not feeling quite relieved. I call this one, and I'll call this one, and I'll call this one, because every day, again, as I said before, because it is important, it's every day is a fight for your life. All it takes, especially you come into this and you lose all tolerance to all drugs and as intense and potent as drugs are these days, as far as, you know, poisoning and killing people, when it comes down to it, for me being over one year clean, it'd take me one time, man, you know, being an active, uh, you know, a previously active IV drug user, it'd take me one time, one needle, one little pinprick and, and you don't even see it coming. Trust me from experience. I know like. You, you get that rush that you want, and the next thing you know, well, I mean, that's it. There is no next thing you know because you're out, and you don't even see it coming. Uh, for me, I was fortunate enough to wake up, and but I was there, and then I wasn't, and it's all too fucking scary. So it is a fight for your life, um, and, you, and you just have to want to live, you know, uh, because ultimately when it comes down to it, you're dancing with death. Um, you know, and I'm not like, uh, try, uh, it's more of a beacon of hope thing. I'm not, uh, an, a godfather of recovery and stuff. I just know I can't do this alone and I have to want to do it and I have to chase it every day, man. I have to chase it every day or I won't have all the, the joy in life that I have all that serenity. Sorry, recovery. I get in my recovery, you know, stuff here. So <laughs> I get a little chatty, but 
that's why I, I wanted to have both of you on here because you're both very passionate about recovery and it gives it also helps you guys to to share and to teach others what works for you and um so i'm going to end it this way say someone's listening to this and they go to a meeting today uh what would you say to them well first off it's a welcome a big welcome man like you know i i me personally like i'll approach someone and try to get them you know me i'm pushy you know i'm a military based so like i'm gonna try to push you you know to the best of your ability but like trying to get you to share or to talk but really what i'd say is like don't just just sit back and listen man. get a feel for it you know hear what's being said you know and realize that you're not alone you're not different um you know, there's no all two addicts like your your walks of life have been different but it's the same you've lived the same life you've used the same methods of coping you've used the same methods of pleasure seeking of pain avoiding like it's all the same so sit back take a listen you know and, and let's hear what sticks out to you you know uh and, but most importantly keep coming back yeah know? But yeah, yeah, show up, listen, and keep coming back. That's what I would say. Yes, show up, listen, keep coming back. And also, I know it's rough the first time. Um, it was for me. But also, people say to listen. I learned from my experience. It's also good to talk some. Um, if you're comfortable at talking at your first meeting. Kind of sit down, listen a little bit, see what people are talking about, what kind of topics, whatever. See what kind of free ring you got. And then share a little bit about yourself or what you're going through or your struggles or whatever. And then that kind of opens the door for people to know how to help you. If they know what's going on or what the problem is they'll know how to address the issue <clears throat> so i mean listening and everything's really good you need to listen to pick up on the key things that we've learned but also don't be afraid to share the more you share the more people learn and the better they get to know you the better they know how to if you don't address your problems you're having with the people that are there for you, they have no idea how to reach out and help you. Right. Listen, when it comes, Justin, you said free reign. Listen, there's no limits on free reign in an NA meeting. Let me tell you, when I first come into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous the first time, man, with my combat experience and like and the darkness that goes through my head, like it was listen it was a trip to listen to like there's no limits on what you can say do like you know you got to get that shit out because you know ultimately it's those things that you keep inside that's going to be your demise you know as far as you know destroying your recovery because when i come into the rooms like with my combat orientation it's i'm going to feed some bullets i'm going to eat some bullets i'm going <laughs> to take you all out with me and i'm going to burn the fucking world down when i go and if that's the shit that i gotta say if that's what i'm thinking if that's what's going through my head and and if getting it off my chest is going to keep me clean then by all means you say what the fuck it is 
you don't hold back. Like if, if it's going, if, if it's important to you, the same thing may be very important to someone else, man. Well, we certainly appreciate both of you coming on here and sharing your experience. Um, it means a lot, not only to us, but I'm sure to other people out there. And congratulations to both of you on how far you've come. It's not a small feat, it's gigantic, and you know, I really hope you guys are proud of yourselves for everything you've gone through and everything you've, you've made it through. Every day is a blessing. Definitely. Yeah, every day every is. Every day clean is a new miracle. I thank God every morning when I wake up for another day alive. Yeah, Kev, just pray about it. But yeah, I really appreciate you guys joining today too. I, you know, I love learning more about both of you and doing that in such a public setting is going to help someone else. And that's kind of where my, my knack is, is outreach. So I really appreciate you guys coming, but if you guys don't have anything else to say, we're just going to end right here. I could talk for days. So go ahead and do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think Jess, can you go over who, like, what next week's going to hold for us? Uh, next week is actually a break week, but okay. during that week, we're actually going to be recording all three of August's episodes. So it's happening fully in one week, and I'm going to be a busy person. <laughs> yeah. Editing. So is this like a local thing? Uh, this well, it's all over the United States, and we are currently in Brazil, Ireland, Germany, and England. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Germany, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's been a pleasure. Uh, well, thanks for having me, for sure. Of course. Uh, Steph asked me, and I've definitely been anticipating it. I think I messaged her like four times tonight. Like, are you going to send me that link? So, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to end mine with, um, I'm an addict named Kev, so recovery is possible. I'm an addict named Justin. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining, and we hope to see you guys on our next podcast. I'll Bye. All right. Keep coming Bye. back. It works if you work it. You die if you don't.